Welcome to Last First State Radio, featuring interviews with experts in dating, relating, and mating in midlife. And now, here's your host, Sandy Weiner. One of my favorites that I have my clients ask is, if your ex were here with us right now, what would they say is the reason for your breakup? Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating the answers you get, and people usually tell you the truth. I've had clients who have said that uh, the person told them, well, my ex would say that I was lazy, and it turned out they were lazy. This is episode number 463 with Dr. Duena Welch, when and how to ask hard questions in dating. Hi, everybody. I'm Sandy Weiner, and welcome back to Last First Date Radio, where we believe it is never too late to go on your last first date. If you want support on your journey to lasting love, I wrote a book just for you, and it's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love, and it's filled with 30 chapters filled with tips, stories, exercises designed to help you step more fully into your value. And you can find it on Amazon in Kindle and paperback. This week's tip from the book is step number 25, which is know when to say yes. We're very focused on saying no or you know, not saying yes to the right things, saying yes to the wrong things. And so it's really important to know your yeses and your noes. I believe in dating, we often say no too quickly. And so if you are just automatically saying no to somebody because they remind you of your ex or you made an assumption about them based on something they said, which I'm sure we'll be talking about on today's episode, uh, say yes before you find out the facts. And when you get curious, you'll know whether to have an actual no or or a made up no. So you wanna own the yeses and own the noes. And before I bring Dr. Duena on to the show, I would like to invite you to join my Facebook group. It's called Your Last First Date. And this is a supportive, positive place for you to move forward in your dating process. You know, we often, I just talked about assumptions. We often are filled with assumptions and negative beliefs. And we're gonna talk about that today too, about how we self-sabotage. And in our group, we don't allow you to just go down that, that spiral of self beat up or what's wrong with men. We want you to take responsibility for your share so that you can go on your last first date. So join us there on Facebook, your last first date. And now for my guest, Dr. Duena Welch is the original Love Factually author and coach known for using social science to help find and keep the right partner. She's taught in universities in Florida, California, and Texas across the past 20 years. Her Love Factually books are now out globally in five languages. That is impressive. And her client practice is global. And you can find her at loveactually.com. Co? Is it co or dot com? It's lovefactually.co. Yes. .co. Yes. Well, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that warm introduction. It's so great to be on your show. Uh, it's great to have you. And I absolutely love this, this um, topic. But before we get into the hard questions, um, tell us a little bit about how you got into this field, because this is very different from the teaching that you did at universities. Yeah, well, when I was in graduate school, 
I was studying memory and aging, so not exactly this. <laughs> and I, I have a bachelor's in psychology and then a master's and a PhD in developmental psych with a focus on memory and aging. And I went through a particularly painful breakup when I was uh, 26 or 27 years old. Thank goodness it's far enough in my past that I no longer remember my precise age at the time. <laughs> and this too shall pass. That's one of the themes. Anyway, uh, it just occurred to me that I didn't really know very much about relationships. I thought I was pretty intelligent, but I didn't seem to know very much about something that had the power to make or break my happiness. You know, relationships are the thing that are the most central to human happiness. Not just love relationships, but in cultures like ours, where we tend to live on our own or with a partner, they're very, very important. They have a, a place of primacy. And I realized that I just wasn't very good at dating. I don't mean I didn't go on dates or that I didn't have a good time. I mean that I didn't know what to ask people. I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know when to say no. I didn't know when to say yes. I didn't know how to time uh, sexual intimacy. I didn't know how to, how to read people. I didn't know a lot about... Um, mating psychology, basically. But it, it occurred to me that other people probably did, that there were probably other nerds like me who had spent their lives studying that. And there were, there were a lot of them. I read those textbooks for fun now. And <laughs> so I started applying this to my own relationship search. And I wound up getting in um, two really, really long-term relationships, two marriages, which as Margaret Mead said, when she was asked about her three failed marriages, the famous anthropologist, she said, I have had three marriages and not one of them was a failure. So uh, I, I wound up happily married a couple of times, unfortunately, uh, not, not forever. But um, the science has helped me. It's helped my clients. People started approaching me, asking me to do for them what I had done for myself. And I began doing that on the side. And ultimately I wound up using this information in every class I taught, writing these books and seeing clients all over the world. Wow. I can relate to so much of your story of not really knowing what we're doing. And I think, I think so many of us can. It's, most of us grow up in homes without the modeling that would teach us really what healthy looks like. And I, I was just on a a coaching call this morning with somebody new and we're connecting the dots between her past and her present and the relationship patterns that come from having unhealthy relationships with your, your parents or your caretakers. And, and the, unconsciously we choose partners without even knowing that we chose somebody. Like when I chose my husband, I thought, well, I'm choosing the opposite of my father. So it's gonna work out. I thought I knew exactly what I was doing. It turns out that on the surface, my husband was very different from my father in many ways, but where it really counted, he was very much like my father. And it wasn't just about being like my father or not like my father. It also had to do with the skills I didn't have to resolve conflict, to even know what common values really look like, because we might think, oh, we like the same things and we think we want the same things, but can we make hard decisions together? Can we really thrive in difficult times? And so, so many of those things are what I learned. Like what, what are some of the big lessons that you took away from all this research you did? 
that men and women really do have a lot of overlap in our mating psychology, but there are some significant differences and failing to acknowledge those can make the early stages of dating really difficult. We have a mating dance just like birds do. And a lot of times it gets labeled as gamey and manipulative and controlling and certainly can be, but it doesn't have to be. Um, you can be very open about saying, you know, here's, here are the things I will and won't be doing early in dating and not be manipulative about it and still uh, behave in a way that the gender that you seek responds to instead of putting off people that you really want and getting people to ditch you who uh, are, are getting people to, to want commitment with you that you don't want which was happening a lot to me. That was probably the big thing. Another thing is that while you're absolutely correct that many of us are not raised in homes with ideal communication patterns where we see it. You know, it's funny, I've had over the years clients who were raised by parents who got along really well, so well that my clients had never seen an argument. Mm -hmm. You know, they were happening because happy couples have arguments, but they were happening behind closed doors. And my clients really didn't understand anything about how to ask for what they needed, how to process a difficult conversation so that the relationship got stronger rather than weaker. Mm -hmm. These are really important relationship skills. And most of us, even from happy homes, we really don't get that training. So true. I think a lot of people have this misunderstanding about what healthy looks like. So that's a great example. I, I, I talk about a client I had whose mother was ill and loving, but because her mother was sick, her father would say, just behave, be a good girl, don't make a lot of noise. And so she suppressed who she was and had to get the good grades and became a massive people pleaser and is still playing out today in her late 60s. And so it's like, oh, that's how I became that. But my parents were so loving. Why did I marry a narcissist? You know, and so it can happen. And it's important to do this work so we can figure out how we got to be this way, what skills we're missing and what we can learn. Because as you and I both teach, this stuff can be taught, right? This is their science behind it. Yes, the Gottmans have shown in more than 35 years of longitudinal research, meaning you follow the same people across all those 35 years, pick up new people along the way, see what's working and what doesn't, that master couples naturally do things that disaster couples can learn to do. And these are things that we can be working on even when we're single. We can be preparing for the love of our lives and the best communication of our lives. It doesn't have to be in a partnered context. These skills serve us across all contexts. So agree. I, I love the Gottman so much. And it's, you know, a lot of, and one just will share one little tip from the Gottman's that I love is, is um, turning towards your partner. You know, we put out bids for connection all the time. And I love the way they describe that because I know like with my children, one of my children, I'll put out bids to connect and she'll usually reject them or ignore them and, or just go, no, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's like, I'm trying to connect and I'm feeling cut off. And with other of my children, they will take the bid. They will accept the bid. They will turn towards me and we'll have a connection. And so just even that little thing of just, oh, I'm putting out a bid and it's not getting accepted. It's getting rejected or it's neutral. And that's why I feel a disconnect. That was life-changing for me. Like what, what's one of your favorite Gottman tips? <laughs> that unhappy couples have 69% of their problems that will never, ever, ever be resolved. 
but so do happy couples. It's the same <laughs> percentage, which tells us th this was life-changing for me. It tells us that it's the way we talk about things, not just the things we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's learnable. It, kindness and respect are learnable. And it really comes down to kindness and respectfulness. And it's interesting because I have clients who will point out that, well, they're kind to me. And I'll say, no, you're looking for someone who's kind to the wait staff and the child who can do nothing for them and people who are in, in servile positions relative to them in servant-like positions and whether or not they've had a good day, it doesn't mean they're a saint, but it means that when they mess up, they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And they mm -hmm. really mean it. And they try to do better going forward. And so kindness and respectfulness respect means they, they assume that you are capable of making your own choices and that if you want their input, you will ask. And that <laughs> uh, if you choose another path that you have a good reason for it, these are kindness and respect and they are the bedrock of a happy relationship. And there are lots of couples, every happy couple has differences that they're never going to get past but with kindness and respect, it doesn't become this relationship destroying, relationship eating thing. Unless it's something like addiction, which is frankly why both of my marriages ended. Oh, wow. That's not a kindness or respect issue. <clears throat> but many, you know, if you've got a profligate cheater on your hand, also not a kindness or respect issue. But many, many issues really do come down to that. And they are learnable. Although for those of you out there who are just now dating, don't accept it during dating. Don't accept a lack of kindness and respect off the bat. Don't, don't learn that with someone when you're just getting together. Find somebody who's already got it. Yeah, you can't fix people. <laughs> and, uh, and those things show up really early on and we tend to ignore them when your eyes are the most clear, because if you're not yet sexual with somebody, you're seeing things so much more clearly than you're gonna once you get really attached. And so I so agree with you. I mean, when I work with a client, I debrief every single date. We look at what worked, we look at what didn't work. We look at where, do you wanna get more curious about these things or, or is this enough of a deal breaker never to see this person again? Because, and then you look at yourself, what am I doing well? What can I improve on? And it's like, if we're not looking at ourselves and really being intentional with dating, then we keep making the same mistakes. You're so right. So much of it is about intent and intent involves willingness to look very closely and clearly at what's happening in front of us. People, one of my favorite sayings is people are constantly showing us who they are. Another of my favorite sayings is by uh, deceased poet laureate, Maya Angelou, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. My favorite. People are constantly, they're constantly showing us. They're showing us from the first time that we connect. Do we have the clear sightedness and the willingness to see it? You know, you talk about how if you're not sexual with them yet, that that's when your clearest died. Yes. And if somebody has an anxious attachment style, they tend to attach very quickly, even sometimes before sex or physical contact happen because anxious folks so badly want to be in a relationship that they'll overlook a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. uh, secure people may overlook things because secure people will assume that, well, I have a rock solid foundation, so does everybody else. Yeah. And avoidant people may just not be invested enough to look very clearly. So I think most people have a difficult time 
following through on their intentionality, even when it's really, really clear, which is of course, coaching can be very, very helpful with that. I work on that with my clients as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point that it, it shows up for all people and, and having the clarity also, which is why at the beginning of the coaching process, you want to get really clear who you are, what you bring to a relationship, what you're looking for, what you will and won't tolerate, because then you just go back to that, you know, clarity of, wait a minute, I'm looking for this and this is showing up and that's not what I'm looking for. And then you don't start second guessing, like maybe I'm being too hard on them. Maybe I'm being too sensitive because many of us were told that our whole lives, right? And so we start to doubt our own intuition that's telling us stick to this. This is important, right? Yes. Intuition is a real thing now scientifically validated. Yep, definitely. All right. Let's get to the hard questions. Cause you know, it's kind of dovetails into this that people don't speak up early enough and they don't ask hard questions. So what are, what are some of the hard questions people avoid and why do people take so long to ask these questions? Yeah. Some, so some hard questions are questions you wouldn't ask, you would look at the behavior and you just need to look more closely at the behavior. For example, kindness and respectfulness. If you say, are you kind and respectful? Someone is very likely to say yes, mm -hmm. because we all perceive ourselves as, as good, almost all of us do. And we want, to, we want to appear well, we don't want to look good in front of other people. So even if we didn't think we were good, we might say yes to that. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of question where the way you ask it is to go in a roundabout way. And one of my favorites that I have my clients ask is if your ex were here with us right now, what would they say is the reason for your breakup? Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating the answers you get. And people usually tell you the truth. I've had clients who have said that uh, the person told them, well, my ex would say that I was lazy. And it turned out they were lazy, <laughs> which was not a big selling point in the relationship, believe it or not. <laughs> I'm looking for a lazy guy. <laughs> Exactly. Um, one person said, well, my ex would say that I'm really mean spirited. Now, if you asked him, are you mean spirited? He would have said no, but he would say it in the context of what his ex would say. I encourage you to follow up and say, oh, can you tell me more about that? The other thing I encourage you to do is listen to how they talk about their ex, because a follow-up question you can say is, well, in your opinion, do, do you share your former partner's opinion of, of why you're not together. And they will frequently say, well, no, I don't. They'll give their story. Listen to how they talk about their ex. It's one thing to have core level disagreements with this person that you used to be with for a long time. It is another to devalue them as a human being, to denigrate their humanity, to insult their integrity as a person, their worthiness to breathe air. I heard recently from someone who got repeatedly told, um, I wish my ex would drop effing dead. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is not good. <laughs> it's not good that the person has not worked through this prior to dating you. It's not good that they're volunteering this. They don't have much self-control. And it's not optimal that they actually would wish their former partner that they loved so much that they committed to them dead. It's not, not good that they're wishing that. No. <laughs> is it human nature now and then to uh, wish that troublesome people would vanish from our scene? Yeah. 
but yelling and screaming this repeatedly, not so much. <laughs> so, yeah. And not on a first date, maybe. <laughs> not on a first date, not on a second date, really not on a third date. You're looking for someone who can tell you their truth gradually and in greater and greater depth as they go. People who blurt, this is another unspoken question. Do they tell me their whole, do they life dump right away? That's usually a sign of some fairly serious psychological imbalance. You know, to some extent, I think some of this is cultural. And to get to your question, Sandy, about why do people do these things? Why do they avoid questions? Leads me also to wonder, well, why do they life dump? They're kind of for the same reason. They're sides of the same coin. People who life dump are frequently doing it because if you're going to reject them, they'd rather it happen soon. They're, they're in a defensive posture. Unfortunately, they're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy much of the time. And people who don't ask the hard questions, and we'll get to how to actually ask hard questions in a moment. People who don't ask the hard questions frequently are afraid of being alone or they're telling themselves, which is a version of fear of being alone. We're just having fun right now. I don't need to ask anything serious right off the bat. You do need to ask the serious questions right off the bat. How many children do you think you want someday, if any, is a question that's great for a first phone call because it scares away people who never want any. And um, if you wait until you're in love to ask that, there's so much writing on the answer at that point. You want to ask the hard questions. Don't do a life dump, but ask the hard questions quickly. There are ways to do this and ways not to do this. For example, with the children question or uh, the commitment question, you know, are you looking for a commitment someday? That's a completely fair question. Um, do you want to get married? Sounds like you just proposed. So <laughs> there are ways. And I often tell my clients one way around this is to say, I know we're just having fun getting to know each other, but I find that it doesn't make a lot of sense to get in deep. I'm looking for a real partnership and it doesn't make sense to me to get in deep with someone where we see life really, really differently. So I wondered if we could talk about some fairly serious things, even though, you know, we might not work out. And usually okay. people will say, sure. And you can say, well, for example, you know, I'm looking for a monogamous long-term relationship. What does your ideal relationship look like? Or you can say, I've already had all the children I ever want to have, although I'm open to helping a partner raise theirs. What are your ideas around family? Or if you're older, it could be, I take care of my mom uh, sometimes. And um, I'm wondering, you know, what do you think is the optimal, optimal amount of time spent as a couple versus time spent as, as uh, with family when you're in a long-term partnership. These are hypothetical questions at this point. And that's the beauty of them is if you see things really differently, I was dating, um, I'm in a relationship now, but I was dating back in January and it came up very quickly. The person I was talking with mentioned that he carries a gun with him absolutely everywhere he goes. And this is not something that's going to work for me. And I had really been enjoying talking with him. And I want to be clear, when you reach something that's a clear no for you, don't ghost the person. Tell them that you've reached a clear no. Remember, when you're having the serious conversations really quickly, without going into your whole personal history, notice that you don't have to go in your whole personal history to ask these deep questions. You can say, here's how I see life in a general way. And the way this man sees life in a general way is that he wants to have a firearm with him all the time in case he is called upon to use it. And I see things very, very differently from that. 
And I, this is not an area where I can be tolerant. I'm just not. And so I had to say to him, oh, God, that's such a shame for me. And he said, why? And I said, because I'm really enjoying talking to you, but I, that's just not something I can do. I love that. I, it's just not something I can do. And he tried to make me wrong and he tried to make me see why his perspective was right. And I said, you know, you could be right. I'm not saying that you are wrong. I am saying we've got a mismatch here and it's unfortunately not one that's going to ever work out for me. So, you know, I really appreciate that you took the time to talk with me and, and it was exciting and fun, but it, you know, it's not going to work out for us to go out. Right. So taking ownership is, it's really beautiful the way you said that because you acknowledged that you enjoyed the conversation up until then. It seemed like it was fun. And now deal breakers showed up. This is not negotiable. You didn't say you're a bad person for carrying a gun. You said that doesn't work for me. And that's such a big difference because often these conversations become you're wrong. I'm right. And that's how he took it. And you came back and said, I'm not making you wrong. I'm just saying this isn't good for me. And that was a huge shift for me as well. Like when I started to really own what worked for me and was able early on to say, you know what? That doesn't work for me. I'm looking for someone who blank. And that's, it's fine that you're this way and I'm this way, but I'm not going to date you anymore. And I wish you well and have a good life. And because otherwise you're sitting there waiting for that person to be the person that you need them to be. And they're not, you know, and that's where some people just get very stuck. Right. Yeah, and the stakes are really high. The longer you let this go on. Yeah. The stakes are really, really high. So for example, uh, I worked with someone who got deeply emotionally involved and a lot of people did this during pandemic, you know, our, our world, so many of us had reasons for our world to shrink so much. And so it wasn't unusual for people to become instant pandemic partners. Mm -hmm. And this person became an, a pandemic partner, barely knew the person when they started living together, they started living together right away. And my client really wanted, fell in love, really, really wanted this to be a workable relationship but would not ask the question, what are you looking for? And the higher the stakes became, the more reluctant my client was to ask. And by the time, well, actually my client never did ask. The other person said, it seems like you want love and commitment and that's just not who I am. I'm not gonna ever be able to offer that. And it was, it was so devastating. And I would wanna save everyone from that. You know, an early question, if you could have a relationship that matched your ideal, what would that look like? If someone says, well, what do you mean? You can say, well, for example, some people want polyamory and some people want monogamy and some people want to live separately, but be permanent partners. And other people want, you know, the full marriage and commitment and lifelong monogamy thing. What does it look like for you? no matter what they say, and this is the beauty of really asking your important questions. And like you said earlier, Sandy, this means you know yourself. It means you know your, your must-have standards. We call them must-haves versus wants. You need to come up with ways to assess every single must-have. And the must-haves are not like, oh, they've got 90%. That's a pass. That's an A. No, must-haves mean 
100% of your must-haves are there. And you have to be willing to, to ask these questions or assess these qualities and be willing to put yourself out there because all the information you get is valid. So one of my clients was going out with this guy that said, well, I don't have to know the answer to that, do I? About the, what do you want in your, your committed or non-committed life question. And much to her credit, she said, well, you don't have to, but I have to have somebody who knows the answer to that question. And she didn't see him again. And that was a good call. That was somebody who in all likelihood did not value commitment very much because people who value it know that they value it. Mm, and they're not, shy about they're not shy about saying so. And you know, the stereotype that women woke up knowing they wanted to be married and, and men don't want kids. That's not true. <laughs> that's not true. In fact, when you look at what happens after divorce, men are much, much, much likelier to remarry and to do so quickly than women are. Mm -hmm. And if nobody's twisting their arm, if, <laughs> if they didn't want that, they wouldn't do that. They want it. Yeah. The, the most pro-marriage people that you know are probably men who used to be divorced or are now remarried. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Music Unlimited. You can listen to over 70 million songs and thousands of playlists and stations. Plus, you can now stream your favorite podcasts like Last First Date Radio. You can listen to any song, anytime, anywhere, on any of your devices, your smartphone, your tablet, your PC or Mac, Fire TV, and any Alexa-enabled devices like the Amazon Echo. Get Amazon Music Unlimited for free for 30 days. Just head on over to getamazonmusic.com forward slash last first date to learn more and claim this offer. So many people shy away from the questions. They're afraid to ask. And like you say, it's like, it's important to know the answers and not to find out once you're emotionally invested and where you have this sunk cost, like I've already invested all this time and energy and we're in love and we've had sex and the sex is great. That, that has you overlook those must-haves, you know? And, and I always tell my clients, one deal breaker is all it takes. It, you don't have to have five of them. If you have five must-haves and one deal breaker, the must-haves go down the drain. Like they don't matter anymore because the deal breaker is present. And what people do is they justify the deal breaker, but he's so educated and he's so handsome and the sex is great. And so- It's hard to walk away from the educated sex God. I, I, completely, I concur. <laughs> it's, very, it's very difficult to walk away from that guy. He's probably is. tall and good looking too, yeah. you know? And <laughs> And he had a lot of oh, money. He had a wonderful <laughs> sense of humor and, and he was, and he was nice and it is, it's hard to walk away from that guy. Here's the thing. People who, who resonate with that a lot of times have what's called an anxious attachment style of a hallmark of a, anxious folks are people who, when they attach, they feel not quite good enough. And they're very preoccupied and worried about the romantic partnership. And it's okay. You can be anxious and find great love. You can do that, but you have to be willing to let, let, let go of love that isn't great. The person who has one of your deal breakers, that's love that's not great. You can find great love, but not by sticking with the, what doesn't work. I know it's hard. I've walked the Lonesome Valley. I was anxious for years and years. 
the quickest way to not be anxious anymore is to get learn what secure attachment looks like and get involved with someone who is. And that's another thing that I talk to you about my about with my clients is, well, what are questions you can ask that will assess that or even better their tests online. And you can look at the person's behavior and go, yep, yep, yep. And figure it out, which is, <laughs> which is uh, fun. But you know, you, you've brought up something a couple times that I think is really important. When we, we as women tend to emotionally connect when we sexually connect. Uh, studies of casual sex partners showed that 75% of young women who were in a casual sex friends with benefits scenario, 75% of these women said that they were becoming emotionally attached to this partner who they knew was not good for them, by the way. 75% of men in that same study said just the reverse. They also acknowledged this person isn't good for me. That's why we're in a friends with benefits situation. So that was the same. But they said, it's just fun. I'm not having any difficulty remaining emotionally detached. There's a, a fairly wide gender gap on this issue. And so that's why I encourage women to nurture the sense of self-esteem that you don't have to get sexually involved as quickly as culture currently tells you you do right now. And for probably the last 15, maybe 25 years, maybe longer than that, word on the street has been that um, sex is expected on or around the third date, but you don't have to do that especially if you're an anxious attachment style. It's so true. It's like, I mean, a large part of coaching is learning to trust yourself, learning to trust what you need, not what somebody else wants from you, pressures you into. And it takes time to develop that. And I, I also was a very anxious attachment style. I had an ancient attachment style. And I, I would create this amazing relationship in my head before I had any data on this person. And especially, I remember even the transformation and how it happened, but right after the divorce, about two years later, when I started dating again, I met a guy online and the first phone call lasted about four hours. And he was so nurturing and sweet and seemed so deep and, and interesting. And we started talking on the phone every single day. We exchanged about 30 emails. I mean, this is before texting every day. This, and he was sending me poetry. I mean, it was crazy. I didn't really know what he looked like because he had only one picture posted online. And I filled in all the blanks. This is my future husband. I'm so lucky. I met him right away. I don't have to spend all this time online because I met the greatest guy. And when we finally met in person, it was horrible. It was, it was so horrible. We had zero connection. I wanted to run out of that space so fast. And it was my big wake up call. That was probably the last time that I start, you know, I did that. And, but that was a, that was something I did my whole life, you know, just to just fall madly in love with people I knew very little about. And we want connection. We want to believe that that person is the one. And we walk around with this like starry eyed approach to dating instead of balancing the head and the heart. Like, so what happens to a lot of people, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, is they go to the opposite direction. You know, I'm going to just be rational and I'm going to put the guards up. And now I'm going to, no, you're wrong for me. You know, so 
So what do you say to people who kind of have gone from one extreme to the other? Like, how can they get back to center and date with a more secure attachment style? It's like a fulcrum or a seesaw. The, obje the objective here is to maintain some balance. Definitely notice how you feel around this person because relationships are primarily about how the other person, how you feel when you're with them. Mm -hmm. Do you feel secure? Do you feel heard? Do you feel valued? Do you feel excited? But don't let that be everything. A asking the tough questions quickly in a, a non-combative, non-confrontational style, like we've been giving examples of, but asking those questions quickly means you don't have the time to fill in too many of the blanks because the blanks are being filled yourself because the blanks are being filled by actual information. And when you've assessed all of your deal breakers, if this person matches all of them and you are attracted to them, well, then it's safe to fall in love with them at that point. It's safe to let yourself go emotionally. And it doesn't take that much longer than screwing it up. That's the funny thing is doing it this way doesn't take that long. You know, um, in January, I think I had, I don't remember how many men I interacted with online, but I had, um, I think 15 phone dates and four socially distanced walks. And then um, I had a lot of phone calls with the people who I wound up meeting. And then there was only one person I had a second date with. Part of that was I was willing to ask the really tough questions even on the phone. Yeah, I was willing to do that. And, you know, I would see that somebody wasn't going to be a good match for me because I understood me so well. I understood what I had to have so well. It's both. And I just didn't let myself, I would catch myself making up a story and I would say, you're making up a story right now. Get more information, mm -hmm. gather intelligence. Yeah. And, and again, it doesn't have to feel like, you know, you're rapid fire asking questions to this person. Most people, if you just give them open-ended questions and you really care about hearing them out, they, they're going to answer the questions for you and listen not only to what they say, but how they say it. Do they say it with kindness, respectfulness? Do they say it with bitterness and anger? None of us needs to partner with somebody who hasn't done the work of moving past generic, all-encompassing bitterness and anger. It's one of the things you're looking for. Absolutely. I mean, I used to spend too long on the phone with those guys too. <laughs> like the, the bitter, she took all my money and then I'd feel bad for them. And then I would listen for like an hour and a half to them complaining about the ex-wife. And I'd be like, there's no way I would do that today. But that's what I needed to go through to get to where I am today, where I pick up on those things as well. It's like you listening to tone of voice, listening to the way somebody, even you know, I had a client say, well, I talked to a guy and he said he, he hasn't had work in a year. And I said, that's a deal breaker. I said, well, is it really a deal breaker? I mean, we need to know more, you know, is he looking for work? Has he been looking? Is his job a very hard job to find, you know, replacement job in? Is he thinking outside the box? Is he complaining? Is he a victim? Is he, you know, and so you can really see a lot by the follow-up questions, like you said, to get curious and ask more. We talked about debt. That's something that comes up a lot too. Some people have debt and why do they have debt? Are they paying off their debt? Are they a liability or are they somebody who's responsible? And the only way you'll find out is by asking follow-up questions. We tend to 
immediately make assumptions about people based on how many times they got married. You know, you're a liability. You were married twice. Like people can make up stories about you that you're, you're just a person who throws marriages away or I'm a person who loves being married. I value relationships. I'm looking for the right partner now. I didn't have all the information then. It's really who we become. So speaking of that, let's talk about how we do tell these stories about our lives because how we tell them matters a lot as well. So how, how and when do we share some of those harder things about us? Yeah, that's really, on the one hand, you don't want to hold back important information to such an extent that it appears that you are duplicitous or out- outright lying by omission. On the other hand, you don't want to give your life story to someone you may never see again. That feels really gross. It it can be depressing to some people. And you don't want to give really hard details so quickly and with so little context that someone decides you're psychologically unstable and they reject you out of hand. So let's say that the story is that you're unemployed. A lot of people were unemployed during the pandemic you need to think of a way to share your employment status because someone's going to say, what do you do for a living? And they are going to say that because that's, it's America. And that's the first after your name, that's almost what people want to know. And you can say, well, you know, during pandemic, um, a lot of people were laid off. I was one of them. Uh, looks like the job market's opening back up. I've been looking and uh, collecting unemployment and it looks like I've got a lead on a couple of positions in my field, or it looks like positions are starting, I'm on LinkedIn and it looks like they're hiring more in my field recently. That's a very different story than I'm unemployed and I'm afraid I'll never get a job again. We have to put our best foot forward. You gotta put a positive spin on it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, what you're really being asked there is not just about whether you have an income, but whether you have resilience. And partners want to know that you do. And the stories we tell ourselves, quite apart from what your partner expects or your future partner expects, the stories we tell ourselves are so important to our happiness. The person that we live with and love every day is us. And it's really, really important to treat that person with kindness and respect, just like what you expect from a partner. And if you don't expect that from a partner, to start expecting it from a partner and from yourself, to be gentle with the things we say to ourselves because we're listening and it's affecting us. And I have hands that shake. And when I was young, people just thought I was cold. I have a condition called um, essential family tremor, EFT. And now that I'm in my early fifties, people have wondered if I have Parkinson's. And what I have said in every case, because no, all that EFT does is make your hands shake. That's it or your knees or whatever part of you it affects. People, it happens differently for different people. I would say, you may notice that my handshake, it's a genetic condition. I didn't pass it on to my son, but I did get it from my dad. And all it means is that uh, I really value speech to text and I'm never gonna be a surgeon. <laughs> That's great, so you use humor as well. Yeah, yeah, use humor, allay the potential fears of this person. But what if you did have a chronic condition? Mm-hmm. My son was born with type 1 diabetes. This is something he does have to reveal to people. You know, 
you can say while you're at dinner giving and dinner's about to come, um, I hope you'll excuse me for a minute. I'm going to give myself some insulin for what we're about to eat. I've had type one diabetes throughout my life. Do you have any questions about that? Don't make it a, we have to talk. <laughs> and then there's some questions you don't have to answer. I, I want to make it clear just because you have asked a question does not mean the other person has to answer it. And just because they asked you one doesn't. So back in January, when I was online dating, I, I asked people about their religion and their politics. And one man who seemed like a really nice guy, I'm sure he is. He, he said to me, and we hadn't progressed to the phone call. He said, you know, I was, I was raised never to discuss either one of those topics, but we can talk about anything else. And I said, I completely understand that that's not something that you discuss, but it's really important to me. So I'm going to have to wish you good luck on your search and, and go back to mine. And he goes, wait, wait, you know, but you know, he didn't want to talk about it and that's okay. You don't have to talk about things you don't want to talk about. The risk is that this person will not be okay with that. But a lot of times people are for, here's a big one that people have asked me a lot about, um, sexually transmitted infection status, revealing that right out the gate or the number of people you've had sex with. If that question comes up, feel free to say, these are things I would discuss later, if you will. And if you won't, because the, the number question, how many, how many people have you slept with? Many of us consider that to be irrelevant and a, a, a bridge too far. And if that's the case for you, you can say, you know, that's just not something I ask or something I answer. I'm sorry, it's just, that really does cross the line for me into just, it's too personal for me. But I, I get why you, you know, you might want to know, but I'm not going to discuss that. And then it's up to them. Notice what I keep coming back to is you share your truth in a simplified, non-dramatic, possibly humorous way. You ask your questions in a simplified, non-dramatic, possibly humorous way. And then you get information. It's this wonderful feedback system. The information yes. will be there for you. And if it's an answer you don't like, it's not that big a deal. You just met. Or I probably never would have thought meet. of that guy again who, right. who didn't answer the religion, except we're on this podcast. But, <laughs> you know, I, I hope and I trust that he has found somebody wonderful for him now who is okay not discussing those things. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, so there's so many great takeaways here. And I just want to just kind of sum up some of this wisdom because people do hesitate to talk about hard stuff. People get asked questions that are uncomfortable and they don't know how to answer or deflect or say, I'm not comfortable. And it's so important to know how to, how to create these responses. And I highly recommend that that people think about what they're gonna answer before you go on a date, before you get on a call, because it's hard to think of these things in the moment. So, and then the curiosity piece, which is a huge takeaway. And I think that at sur on, surf on the surface, a lot of people are different than what, we, what they really are when you dig deeper. And for some people, the, the deal breakers come up right away and pay attention to them. And don't dismiss them. You know, it's, um, I was just thinking about another 
big red flag. For me, I think the tone of voice, the way somebody answers, you know, the whole how people treat the wait staff and people who are of a different class um, than they are, you know, whether they look down on people. I dated a guy once who right at the beginning, he said to me that he had a conversation with a guy that he works with. And he said, I, I yelled at him and I told him, I gave him a piece of my mind, you know, that kind of tone of like, you know, and, and he wasn't gonna talk down to me. And I said, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with that, you know, I'm uncomfortable with how you handled it because it doesn't feel good to me to have somebody yell at me. You know, I, I value compassionate communication and having conflict resolution in a peaceful way. And, you know, and you see it in road rage, you see it in, in ways that people show up and it can be very subtle. So often people will say, I didn't see any of the red flags. And then all of a sudden it was over. And I'm like, you missed so many things that you ignored, that you were afraid to speak up about, that you were, that you wanted something so badly that you didn't want to have these honest conversations. So I hope that people take away that it's, it's never too early to have these conversations, a first phone call, even in texting, right? You didn't even get to a phone call with that guy. And if these things are important to you, don't dismiss them. Like really, really own your yeses, your noes, your, your must-haves, your deal breakers so that you can have clarity about the dating process. It makes it so much easier to really connect with the people who are right for you. Yes, and just circling back to something you asked earlier about when do we tell our difficult truths, I feel like I didn't fully answer that. So in a nutshell, it's like a dance and you're looking for how much this other person is revealing before you reveal really serious, difficult things and ask yourself, do they need to know this yet? Do they need to know this yet? STIs are a big one. Nobody needs to know about your STI on a first date. You should let them know before you have sexual contact that involves the genitals, for sure. If you're waiting a while to do that, though, which is helpful for most women emotionally, then you can wait a little while on that. Uh, I have heard directly from men who say it, said, you know, herpes is not a big deal, but the fact that she brought it up on a first date was. <laughs> yeah. it, it killed my, my buzz. You know, I was trying to get romantically interested in her, and now this is the first thing that comes up. I hadn't even kissed her yet. I've had men say that to me. It, it would have been fine later on. So you don't want to give your the most difficult parts of your story until it makes sense to do so. It doesn't make sense to do so until they have shown. There was a therapist named Sidney Girard years and years ago who talked about reciprocity and how intimacy is this growing reciprocity where, you know, it's, he didn't use the onion analogy, but you know, there's, there's an answer. Um, do you have any health issues? And you can say, well, um, I have one that's, extremely well-regulated. It's actually not a health issue anymore, but you know, that's something we can talk about another time. Very light, truthful, but it doesn't get to the heart, doesn't get to the core of that onion. The second level answer could be, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that doesn't change my day-to-day -day life really almost at all, but um, it's something that we should talk about at some point. And the core level answer could be, 
Um, 10 years ago, um, my partner at the time had an extra pair relationship, cheated on me. I did not know it. I wound up with herpes as a result. Uh, I had one outbreak. I've never had it again, but you should know that before we get sexually involved. Mm. That's a great way to build. And I believe in this low build altogether. I think that, you know, when you come in strong, it's often crash and burn, and it's not based on real knowledge of a person. And um, yeah, because people will ask you questions. They will ask you, I mean, especially as you get older, there are a lot of men who've said, Do you, are you still sexually active? It's like, I don't want to discuss that before I know you. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, you just want to know, again, it's, for me, it's like, it's helpful to try and understand why they're asking this question. You know, they want to know, is there, is there an end result here that I can have? Because I've been with a lot of women who were not sexually active. So would you come out and say, I'm just curious why you're asking me that question before you know me? No, I, I usually wouldn't ask that, although I don't see anything wrong with it. I would I would say something like, it sounds like you might've been with women who weren't interested in sex. Um, I wanna let you know, know that to me, sex is a really important part of a loving relationship. Um, because the truth is, you know, most of the people listening to this show might be women who are interested in men and men care very much about not winding up being emotionally attached to a woman has no interest in sex, unless that man also has no interest in sex, in which case that might be why he's asking. So you could ask why he's asking. Um, but I do think with, with that specific question, it's a good idea to say, you know, that's not something I get into really quickly with a partner, but I find sex to be a really important part of a loving partnership. It's something we can talk about more as we know each other better. Yeah, I like that. That's very gentle and compassionate. And again, there's boundaries. You know, it's, you know, people will say, um, oh, so how long are you divorced? And there was a question that came up in my group. How long are you divorced? And this woman had been divorced six months, but the process had been two and a half years already. And she was out dating as soon as the divorce was final. And so the guy made a kind of a snarky remark, like, oh, you don't waste any time. And she got really triggered. And so if you're getting really triggered, you've got to figure out how to answer those questions and how to, how to speak about your divorce in a different way as well. Like, if you don't want somebody saying those things, you don't have to go into detail, like it was two and a half year process and then six, but you know, that's, that's too much for someone you don't know. So how would you, how would you advise this woman? I would say, well, you know, the length of time that I've been divorced really isn't a reflection of the length of time that I wasn't attached. Mm. Um, the, the divorce took more than two years and I've, and uh, you know, I'm more than half a year on the other side of that process, but I was actually the person who initiated it, which means by the time it even started, my feet were both out the door. So I've been, I've been gone from that relationship for a long time mm -hmm. and I've taken care of what I needed to take care of. Yeah, that part at the end, that's really important because a lot of people are like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just out here and I'm still connected to my ex and I'm resentful. And right. So 
knowing that you have that responsibility. I take care of my stuff. I take care of myself. I know myself. I know what I want. I know what I need. And I'm out here asking questions because I need some clarity. Well, this has been so informative, so wonderful, Duena. And do, oh my God, did I say your name well? You said my name perfectly. I did. Okay. <laughs> and you're, thank you, Sandy, for having the name that you have. I don't have that <laughs> challenge in our conversation. And it has, it has been so much fun. I hope that your listeners find it and your viewers find it really uh, helpful and inspiring. And uh, I wish everybody the best in their search for their last first date. Oh, thank you. And, and I'm sure this is the kind of episode they're going to play like 20 times to get like every word. How can I say this? Because this, this is such a common issue for people. And I'm always asking people to look at it a little differently because there are people who say, but they need to know everything about me right away, or I want to know everything right away so I can make a good choice. But actually knowing everything before you're ready to hear everything is not such a good choice. And I think that's that's another takeaway from today's conversation. So Duana, let people know where they can find you. Sure. You can find me at lovefactually with an F.co, lovefactually.co. And you can see free material from all of my books. There are free samples of all of them. You can see how to get coaching with me. You can see a link that will take you to my broader website with all the articles I've written about these kinds of topics. So lots of free stuff there for you. And I answer all my emails for free. So if somebody just has a question they want to ask, I promise I'll get to it. That's extremely generous and unusual <laughs> that you offer that so that people take advantage of that and go, go check out Duena's website. This is a wealth of information. So thank you again. And um, if you love our show, listeners, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't know how to do that, Google it because it's sometimes complicated. But all of those ratings and reviews really help us to draw in more incredible guests like Duena and to keep going into our 10th year. And we hope you go on your last first date very soon. 